Thank you. Thank you, Tad. Uh, you do not need to genuflect, but I will be in the back for you to kiss the ring <laughs> at the end. Uh, I am going to run the risk of sinning at the very beginning because the Bible says not to show partiality, uh, but I'm a person who shows partiality from time to time, and I have favorite churches and favorite pastors and you're one of our favorite churches, and Chuck is one of my favorite pastors in the Valley. We love partnering with Church on Mill. Church on Mill was one of the first partnership churches we had at Phoenix Seminary, and it's been a delightful partnership. And what Tad even said is to, to have brothers with you with what's happening in this world today is something we can't take for granted. And I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for Pastor Chuck and I'm going to be praying along with you that the Lord will sustain him through this illness. God calls certain people to suffer more than others. And you have a shepherd who suffers and suffers well uh, to leave an example to the flock. And, and I'm grateful for, for that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 37 today. That's a quite a chunk. I'm surprised you're in Mark for a year. There must be a lot of detours that Chuck takes along the way. If we're doing this much in, in one session, he uh, asked me a couple days ago for him to do this, and I thought, man, that is a healthy-sized passage, but we're going to do it this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, I do want to take the opportunity to pray again, to ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and to pray Chuck again. And, and before about and, and, and pray. There's a song that's just been stuck in my head. I think it's wearing my children's patience, how much I've been listening to it. But there's a part in it that says, oh my soul, remember who you're talking to. The only one who death bows to. And it's this idea that as we're praying to God, we got to remember who it is we're talking to. And he's the God who parts seas, that you walk across on dry ground. He's the God who raises people up from the dead. He's the God who's going to lead us safely home at the end of our life. And this is the God we pray to. So when we pray, let's pray expectantly that God will meet us here this morning. Father, I do pray this morning that you will meet us, that you will take everyone in this room, regardless of where they're at, where they're at in their marriages, where they're at with their families, where they're at in the faith, and lead us one step closer to you. We don't believe that we open up the word in vain. We open this up, and the Holy Spirit's unleashed to do his work. And so we're asking that not be just some normal Sunday, we come, we hear the word, we go home, but God change us in this moment. And Lord, I pray for Chuck, dear brother in the faith. God, we pray for his healing, and we know you can do it. And God, I thank you for a man who suffers so well. Not many suffer as well as he does, but to leave us all an example of what it is to follow the Lord Jesus in suffering God, we pray that you will sustain him through this. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past week, in fact, when Chuck asked me to preach for him, I was sitting in a session at Forest Home Camps in California. It was the first time our family has gotten to go to a uh, family camp. And, and I told our kids, I said, I want us to grow closer to God, and I want us to grow closer as a family. And I think the Lord did that. And it also gave me the opportunity to have some, some downtime. And I'm going to say this to my shame. I saw this on my iPad just before I came up. You know how on Sunday it tells you your screen time? This is embarrassing, y'all. My screen time was down 87% this past week. So we really were quite unplugged. I think that says a lot about my screen time during normal weeks. We're not going to go there unless the Lord convict me too much this morning. Uh, but my, my screen time was down. It was wonderful. I got to read pleasure 
books, which I don't often get the chance to do. And I had taken along with me uh, a book that was perfect for the July coming up, a book on America's dad, George Washington. It's called His Excellency by Joseph Ellis. And I love presidential biographies. I think oftentimes they should come with a back brace for heavy lifting. If you've seen them, they're normally this big. This one's actually readable. It's like 300 pages. So I would encourage you to, to get it. And I've read a lot on George Washington. I love George Washington. I love that era of American history as these great men triumphed in the goals that they had set out, birthing a new nation. But I'm always struck by something, even if it's something I've known before, and what struck me this time was how much George Washington relied on his militia. And he thought, with the militia, we can overtake the British. And it's because they believe in this cause. And because they believe in it, just by believing enough, they're going to win out. Well, that didn't last very long. In fact, in New York, as he met General Howe, his troops disbanded. They, they fell apart pretty quickly. And he realized... It wasn't that they didn't believe, but maybe they didn't believe enough, and they weren't trained enough. And when the first threat came against them, they buckled. And so he wrote to the Continental Congress, and he said, I want to build and lead an army of regulars who will stand when the British come against us. Well, my concern is that this is a lot like many Christians I know. They're kind of half in, half out. And they're, they're saying, I believe all this stuff. But then the first time trouble comes, the first time they're called to sacrifice something, pretty quickly they're nowhere to be seen. They're abandoning the faith. Or they're just shrinking back from the Lord as though something surprising has happened. Well, I think in this text we're going to see that the, the, the right kind of belief does lead to following Jesus rightly. So here's kind of the big idea. If you're a note taker, we're going to go through these four passages with these four ideas. When we see Jesus clearly, confess him truly, believe in him rightly, we will follow him fully. When we see Jesus clearly and confess him truly and believe in him rightly, we will follow him fully. So these are the four different snippets we're going to walk through leading up to the point where Jesus talks about what full devotion to him looks like. As I said, we're going to go Mark 8, 22 through 37. Chuck asked me to go on one, but Chuck's not here. And I'm going to do what I want. And we're going to end at verse 37. So first, we need to see Jesus clearly. So look with me in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes... And laid his hand on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter the village. This is a weird story. So Jesus heals this guy, but he kind of misses it on the first attempt, it seems. He, he does it, and then it's a little foggy, and Jesus is like, let's give that another try. First try wasn't good enough, let's do it again. And some people have actually used this to say maybe Jesus wasn't fully powerful. He couldn't really do it the first time. In fact, this is the only time we read in the Gospels that there's kind of an incomplete miracle where he does something and it doesn't get enacted the full way on the first try, if you will. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, Mark is putting this story right after the previous story for, for a purpose. 
So if you remember what I'm a guess scene was preached last week, was this text preached last week? Okay, we'll see if Chuck got it right or whoever is preaching <laughs> got it right. He's talking about the Pharisees and the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's basically saying, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, they do not understand. They, they can see all of these different miracles. They, they can see what the Son of God is here doing and still not believe. Here's the reality is that, that no sign can get people to believe who will not believe. I, I often hear people say, if Jesus just showed up and did something in front of my eyes, I would believe fully. I would give my life to follow him. But he did that. He did all of that. And yet many people still did not believe. And even the disciples are still in the uptake. And this is what I think Mark is doing in this passage, even in this miracle. Now, is it a true miracle? Absolutely. But I think Jesus is doing more than just a miracle here. I think it's actually kind of like a parable that's unfolding in front of their eyes from disbelief in the beginning of, of Mark, of who is this guy that's called us to follow him? Is he really the Messiah or not? And then they begin to kind of see, but not fully see as they would later on. And then by the end of the gospel, their eyes are clearly opened and they see Jesus for who he is. And so that's what I think is happening in, in this passage. So often we're a little slow on the uptake like the disciples. But God is so gracious and so patient with us. This is how God often works. He's slow in his revelation. And we see people take time. Do I see him? It's a little blurry right now. Maybe, maybe for you this morning, if I said, do you see Jesus clearly? You would say it's a little blurry. It's not fully clear. He's not coming to complete focus for me just yet. Well, I think that's what God wants to do. I think God is still in the business of miracles. I think the biggest miracle God ever does is open the eyes of the blind. He raises the dead and he does all this spiritually. For people who cannot see who he is, no matter how many times you tell them, they cannot hear who he is. They do not see him rightly because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And then God miraculously makes them alive and all of a sudden they're born again. And they see, maybe that's some of your testimony, and you would say, I heard the gospel tons growing up, but it never really penetrated my heart. Then all of a sudden, I did see clearly. There's a time that's a little blurry, and then God, in his gracious mercy, made me come alive. So what about you? Do you have blurry vision this morning? Because if we don't see him clearly, we can't confess him truly. And I think that's where... Mark then goes. So after, after he lays out the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are, are seen, but they don't see, and the disciples are, are kind of seen, but their vision is blurry, we move into the next section of this text where Peter confesses the Christ. So to see Jesus clearly, or when we see Jesus clearly, we confess Jesus truly. Look with me in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus asked two questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You'll never be asked two more important questions in your life. Who is Jesus? 
who is Jesus to you? Every person who's ever lived has to deal with the centerpiece man of history, this, this Christ who claims to be God. Either he is and worthy of full devotion or he isn't. Who is this man? And so he asks, who do people say that I am? And, and they say, maybe John the Baptist. And they think maybe John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Others thought he maybe was Elijah. And if you read your Bible, you know at the very end of the Old Testament, we're anticipating Elijah to come. And Elijah did come in the person of John the Baptist. And so they're kind of conflating these two things, and they're not really sure how to think through this rightly. Or, or maybe Jesus is just another one in the long line of prophets. Maybe we're adding to the Old Testament, and he's another prophet, and he's going to write a book, but we're still anticipating the Messiah somewhere out there. I don't think anybody today, if you walk onto ASU's campus and you said, who do you think Jesus is? I don't think you would hear one time, John the Baptist. <laughs> Clearly he's John the Baptist. He, he is Elijah. I would be impressed if anyone said that. I don't think they're going to say that, but who would they say he is? I think you'd hear things like, he's a great teacher. He told us to love one another as we love ourselves. He laid down his life for others. He said, there's no greater love than this, that you would lay down your life for a friend. And if we all just loved like Jesus loved, wouldn't the world be a great place? The answer is yes, it would be if you're transformed by him. Maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's the golden ticket. So I think, again, if we go on the campus of ASU, maybe you in this room this morning, he is that prayer I prayed that one time, said the right words, hocus pocus, this magical thing happened, I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter how I live now, but Jesus is my ticket there. I know the right answers. When I stand before God, I've done the four spiritual laws. I know to say to him, I'm not here on my own righteousness, I'm here on the righteousness of Christ, let me in. But it's not because your life's been transformed by him. He is your ticket to what you really want, and what you really want is heaven, not God. Or, He's the genie. Jesus is the way to get what I want on earth. The, the greatest travesty in, I, I hate to even call it Christian missions because it's not. It's a false gospel that's going across the world. Is the health wealth gospel. I hate to even call it the gospel. There's no good news in it. It's taking poor people and sick people and giving them no hope and watching them walk away from God who they never knew in the first place because they were a false God. But there's so many people who buy that, that, that God's going to give you what you want in this life. And if he doesn't, you didn't believe enough. What a shameful thing to say to somebody like Chuck, Chuck, if you just believed enough. So he's a genie for some, or he's just a liar. And let's be honest. If Jesus is who he says he is, the best answer is he's a liar, and we ought not follow him at all. I love what the Apostle Paul says. I'm not one of those people who said, if Jesus wasn't really who he said he was, I would still live this way because it's a great life. Forget that. The Apostle Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I'm going full on in the world if Jesus is a liar, if he's not who he says he is. And I think Paul would do the same thing. And if he's a liar, he's leading people astray. And I think there's a whole lot of people today who don't even hold on to any kind of vestige of the old Christianity is good for us. Now Christianity is evil for us. And it's something that must be rejected. And Jesus is a bad teacher because he tells you how to live. But we don't want to live that way anymore. 
So who do people say that I am? I think that's who people would say Jesus is today. But Jesus is asking you today, who do you say that I am? And I wish I could go around this room eyeball to eyeball with every single person and ask you that question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And, and Peter got this one right. You are the Christ. And when we read this in Matthew 16, he, he gives a longer answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, ding, ding, ding. You got it, Peter. And flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is the only true confession. We must confess him truly. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who came to crush the serpent underfoot. The promise of Saul, Genesis chapter 3. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who is crushed for sins. He is the prophet like no other. He is the priest who makes a once-for-all sacrifice, and he is the king who sits enthroned forever. That's who he is. That's our confession. And if your confession isn't that, you don't know the Lord. This moment of confession is a pivotal moment in each of the Gospels. Where Jesus is asking this question, and then we're, we're kind of on a downhill slide to Jerusalem. So who, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. Great. Now let's go to Jerusalem so I can show what I'm here to do. And that's what comes next. So when we see Jesus clearly and we confess him truly, then we need to believe in him rightly. Look with me in verse 31. And he began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus predicts what's coming. He's going to be going to Jerusalem. And, and all the people who should have known who he was, all the people who should have recognized him, who were anticipating his coming, they're going to be the ones who put him to death. But what does he say? Three days later, I'll rise again. Folks, this is the cornerstone of the gospel. This is it. Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh, to die, to be buried, to rise again. This week at Forest Home, it's like they did it for me. It was Christmas week. Like their theme this year. They do a theme every year, and it's Christmas. And I love Christmas. And my daughter rebuked me on the way home, and I wanted to keep playing Christmas music because they were doing Christmas music there, that we are not doing Christmas music until November 1st. I'm a November 1st person. There are people who are godly who begin Christmas on November 1st. And there are those who don't love the Lord as much who begin after Thanksgiving. It's okay. Like, I like to celebrate that God came for me. You may not be that person. That's all right. But I do. And so we think about Christmas. In his death, we think about why he came, and he came so that he would die. And when we read the Christmas story, it is, you will name his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. That's who he is. 
This is the gospel. Listen, there's a lot of people today trying to cram a whole lot of things into the gospel. Everything's a gospel issue. Gospel is used as this adjective that we append to everything. It's gospel shoes. It's gospel socks. It's gospel football. I don't know. It's ridiculous because the gospel is a message, and it's a message that God is reconciling people through the death and resurrection of his son. That's the gospel, and that's what Jesus is telling them right now, and they miss it. Everything he's been doing, everything he's been saying leading up to this point, and what does Peter do? I I love picturing this moment. Jesus says this. I'm imagining it's a solemn moment. It's a serious moment. I'm going to die. Don't worry. I'll rise again. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus. Man, don't talk like that. No, 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 no. That's not what the Messiah is here to do. Don't don't fill them with these bad views of what, what you're going to be doing. Now, this is interesting because we say, like, praise in public, rebuke in private, right? That's like a leadership tactic. And Peter does it. He's like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to pull you aside. And Jesus is like, hey, do you all hear what Peter said? And he, like, turns back to the disciples, and he's like, Satan. (laughs) Peter is Satan here. Why? Because his mind is not on the things of God. Peter, I came for this reason. Do you not understand everything I've been doing up to this point is leading to my death and resurrection? That's how we're going to conquer the dominion of darkness. I'm bringing my kingdom of light. We're triumphing over the kingdom of evil. And we're going to do it through the shed blood and the resurrected body. And Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. How fast we can lose that confession. He had lost his heavenly mind for this worldly perspective. And I think it still happens all the time. I see it happen. One of the things I warn our students about a lot is becoming more Jesus than Jesus. I think there's a lot of us today who, when it comes to speaking against a culture of death and darkness, would say to Jesus, whoa, come here. Niceness is what it means to be a Christian. You're not being nice. When you say that truth, that's harmful to that person. Your words are arrows, and you're harming people. So Jesus, don't say that stuff. And we would presume to rebuke Jesus. I think Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. Your eyes are not on the things of heaven. Your eyes are not on the things of truth. Your eyes are not on the eternal perspective of these people. Your eyes are in this moment and what makes you comfortable. It's the zeitgeist, and we must refuse it and reject it. We must believe rightly. So when we see Jesus clearly, and we confess him truly, and we believe in him rightly, we will follow him fully. So look with me in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Boy, does that sound familiar. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the heavenly angels. Following Jesus will cost you everything. We could sum up this whole section. Following Jesus will cost you everything. 
but you'll get everything. There's something really important I want to say up front because I think we read these passages and I'm convinced that there are people here today who set up a two-tier Christianity. There's no radical form of Christianity versus some like normal form of Christianity. I, 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 I'm not going to mention authors or anything. I don't love that we have books that are like radical. Folks, that's called Christianity. This is about as radical as it gets. You want to come after me? You want eternal life? You want to save your soul? Deny and death are the only ways that it's going to happen. That, that, that's not some sort of a super spirituality that belongs to only those who are really kind of going for it. Those who are all in versus those who are kind of on the fence. Some of you want to be people who are, who are just over the line. Like, what, what does it take to just kind of be in? But then I just kind of want to live life my own. But I want to make sure that I've confessed truly and believed rightly. But I kind of want to hedge my bets a little bit. Or even just, I kind of want to live enough for the world. I want to have enough of it. But I want to make sure I still have Jesus. So give, give me that proportion. Like it's some mathematical formula. Just enough, Jesus but not too much Jesus. That doesn't exist. You, you, you're you in this church, which is a great church, and you see people gorging on Christ, and you're content to just nibble around the edges. You see people on fire for Jesus, but you're content to be lukewarm. But let me warn you and remind you of what Jesus says in Revelation 3. Jesus spits lukewarm people out of his mouth. Discipleship will call, cost us everything. God's all in or nothing God. There's no halfway. Jesus was consistent in his call for total commitment. He even said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, happy Father's Day, <laughs> and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is the one who calls us to love everybody, even our enemies, isn't he? So what is Jesus up to here? Well, he's saying, he's doing this wordplay, this hyperbolic uh, wordplay, where he's basically saying, if you, you should love me so much, your love for me should be so big and grandiose that it looks almost as if you hate everyone else, even yourself, compared to how much you love me. So it's not like my family's here and God's just kind of like here and maybe just squeaking out just a little bit more. It is my love for God is so big that it puts in the shadows the love I have for other people. But I can only love other people rightly the more I love God. That, that's, that's what's at play in the New Testament. The more I love Jesus, the more I love God, the more that overflows into the second great commandment to love my neighbor as myself and how I'm going to love my family. And I don't know how people think they can love other people if their loves are not properly ordered to God first. So we should love God so big that it almost looks like hate in comparison. That's just how big the love is. I want to focus a little bit more time on what I'm going to call the three prongs of Christian devotion, but I want to focus on verse 35 through 37 first, lest we miss them. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? What does it profit to get everything in this world? You can have the money of Elon Musk, the power of the U.S. presidency, the fame of a Hollywood actor. You could even just have a nice 
plush, cushy retirement. That that's what you've been living for your whole life. The math is bad for you. 100 years. If you could have 100 years of everything you ever wanted. But then you step off into eternity. You've gained everything in the world. But you've lost your soul. Jesus says, that's not worth it. But if you give up everything, for this brief little time we are flying around the sun, if you give up everything and you follow him, it's so much more worth it. It reminds me of the famous missionary Jim Elliott. You'll remember his story. He was in Ecuador and he was speared to death. I mean, they, they basically arrived and were killed. But he famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. No fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can't lose. Uh, I was not expecting to do this. In fact, it's just providential that this even happened. But we have Hankin and his wife Heather here. Uh, welcome them. They're brand new to Phoenix Seminary. He's our new director of operations. We had no idea we were going to be showing up at the same church today. Had no idea that he'd hear me preaching. Uh, when Jonathan came in for his interviews, I was captivated by part of his story. And part of that story was he was moving up the ranks very, very quickly in FedEx. And I hope it's okay to share some of these details. Um, and, and he said, I want to retire at 55 on the beach. And he was doing so well at FedEx, they said, we're going to make that dream become a reality. But then God showed up and, and said, Jonathan, are you living for this world or are you living for me? And he leaves that all behind. And him and his wife go and serve as missionaries in the Middle East for 11 years, called in by secret police. Their lives are in jeopardy. Will you follow me? Will you leave this world behind? Now, God might be calling some of you to stay at FedEx and be a great Christian witness there. But is there anything God could call you to do that you would say that's too far? Because if it is, you've not died to yourself. And here's what I really believe is, if you've seen Christ clearly, and if you confess him truly and you believe in him rightly, you will follow him fully. So I want to look at these three aspects that Jesus says, if, if anyone would come after me, there's three things. Let him deny himself. So denial, death, take up your cross, and discipleship, follow me. The Christian life is one of, of, of denial. You can't live for you and Jesus. That's impossible. Can't do both. We, in Campus Crusade, in college, we used to do the four spiritual laws, and we would draw these little circles at the end. Have you seen this before? And you put a little throne on the circle, and you have... Christ on the throne of your life and you kind of down here, I've, I've surrendered myself to God. And then you have the other circle where you have Christ kind of outside the life and you're on the throne of your life and you ask people, which one are you? And the answer I got the most often to that question was, I'm kind of a person who kind of has Christ and me on the throne. Is there a spot to do that both? And I said, yeah, it's, kind of, it's this circle over here. It's where really you're on the throne and Christ is outside of it. You cannot have it both ways. The Christian life is one of denial. It's one of the biggest ways to live countercultural in our day today. A day that says live for pleasure, be you, be true to yourself, expressive individualism. If you, again, just I know you probably hear this a lot because you're right off ASU's campus, but to go to ASU and to ask people these kinds of questions, they're all, almost all of them are going to say because they're so inundated with this. That they got to be true to themselves. That, that being happy and, and, and being who they feel like they truly are. If I am who I truly am, you will not like me. 
Like, I, I, I have to, to really kill the part of me that wants to just kind of come in, take charge, move people out of the way, do what I want to do. I've got to die to that. You, you, you don't want me not surrendering and denying myself to be underneath Jesus's authority. And I don't want to be around you either. We have to be deniers of self. In a world that says, I'm not denying myself. Folks, this is it. This is how we can really look the most different to say, I have those desires. I have those urges. I struggle with those sins. But you know what? I'm denying that part. And I'm living for Christ. Second thing he says is death. Take up your cross and follow me. And, and you know this, they would, have, they would have known that image so well. They would have walked by criminals. They would have walked by insurrectionists, hanging on crosses for days. They knew what it meant to suffer slowly and die. And now Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, you must be willing to put yourself up on a cross. The Christian life is for those who die. To this world so that we might live eternally. I, I love how I think Paul, I don't know this, but I think Paul is kind of interpreting this verse in Galatians chapter 2 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? I no longer live because I'm dead. Every morning I wake up, it is, I'm going to live for me. I'm going to live for Christ. Am I crucifying myself, denying myself so that others will see Christ living in and through me? Or am I living for me today? Better question, the person sitting next to you who knows you, would they say, what a crucified life. When I, when I look at them, I see is Jesus. Don't ask my wife that question. This is more rhetorical. Some of you might be called to die physically for the gospel. I doubt many of you or any of you will. But we are called to die daily. And in some ways, facing the executioner's sword once versus waking up every day, dying to yourself for the next 30, 40, 50 years, some of you three years, is, is difficult. It's difficult, but that's what Jesus says. Again, there's no two tiers. Either... You'll be crucified with Christ or you'll live for yourself. The third thing he says is about discipleship. He says, follow me. If anyone come out to me, deny yourself, take up your crosses, die to yourself, and follow me. That's the essence of discipleship. If we could boil down discipleship to two words, we might just say, follow him. When Jesus says, follow me, follow me, I want to show you how often Jesus says, I have just a snippet that I almost picked at random. Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Matthew 8, 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. To the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him. So follow him. We, we have a new dog. Our new dog is named Remus. Now, there's a little fight in the family as to why he's named Remus. I like ancient history. So for me, it's like Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. My wife likes Harry Potter. For her, it's Remus Lupin. 
Regardless, we have a new dog named Remus, and he's a mutt. He's probably like 64 different things. He's a rescue. Um, he's, he's okay right now. Like right now, well, he's probably not okay right now. Right now he's in his cage. And we're going to go home to some mess. I know we are. It's just you got to prepare yourself for that. But here we have this little dog. He's probably 15 weeks old or something like that. I want this dog to be like a trained German shepherd. When I call, he comes. When I say sit, I can walk away for 12 hours, come back, and there he is, sitting perfectly like a statue. When I say shake, he shakes, play dead, whatever. I want to have 400 commands and be able to be like, watch my dog when I command him. But you know what? That he loves me. And when I go, he wants to be right there. We were gone for this week at Forest Home, like I mentioned. It was the first time we'd been away from him like that. And he's young. And when he saw us, man, he's been zooming around the house like a crazy person. He's so excited to be back with us again. Listen, we are dogs to a master. I want to be like Remus, learning obedience to the master, that I want nothing more than to be with them. He's over there. I want to be over there. He says, fetch. I'm going to go fetch. Is sit. I want to sit. I want to obey his commands. Same is true for my kids. I want my kids to be like my dog. Because <laughs> it's good for them. But you know what? I am? I'm a child. I'm a child of God. So I, you, you don't, because you're a, a dad or a mom or 72, you don't graduate from kid stage. You're always a kid to God. I want to be that kind of kid to God. I want to, I want to obey the master. I want, to, I want to be just excited, just exhilarated that I get to be a follower. I get to be a disciple. Are you kidding me? I don't know that this would be true. God knows the heart. But man, when Jesus is like, I'm going to pick 12 of you, be like, hey, right? I want to, I want to go and follow you. And that's what he said, come follow me. It's open to the masses come follow me. We get to be disciples of Jesus. And once we're disciples of Jesus and we're deniers of self, we, we are dying to self. We're disciples of his. There's no going back. There's a long quotation. I'm going to read it here for you that I saw when I was in college. I taped it above my bed and it was really impactful for me. It was by a missionary named Avery Willis, who was a missionary to Indonesia. And then he was president of the Foreign Mission Board and it's a good Southern Baptist church. That's now your international mission board. Here's what he said about discipleship. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My presence makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my God is reliable. My mission is clear. I can't be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I won't flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of my enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, 
paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Is your banner clear? Is your banner high? Over your life, I am a disciple of Christ, seen in my self-denial and my devotion even to death. Is that how the world sees you? Or does the world have a hard time recognizing you as a disciple? There's not two paths, not two levels. When we see him clearly, we confess him truly, we believe in him rightly, we will follow him fully. Have you? Let's pray. Father, this text is so impactful. When I think about your call of discipleship, a call that many of us have heard. We know this passage. Maybe we've memorized it. Maybe it's sitting on the wall in our home. But Lord, we need to hear it freshly. We need this daily. We're so prone to wonder, so prone to live for ourselves. Remind us of the denial you've called us to. God, I thank you for those who have sight in this room that we see Christ that we've confessed that he is the Christ, that we've believed in him. But Lord, I pray for those who have, for those who are blurry in their vision, God, would you give them clarity of sight this morning? We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.